Colossians chapter 1, we'll be reading verses 15 through 20. And as you're turning there, let me just say good morning. It's good to see all of you. Glad that you're joining with us as well online. One programming note, next Sunday, December the 5th, is a potluck Sunday, our first potluck since uh, the global pandemic struck. And so I'm looking forward to it. And it is designed to encourage uh, those of you online who maybe have not yet come back for in-person stuff. Uh, here's an opportunity to come out and uh, worship with us that morning. And then immediately following services, we'll have our potluck. And uh, I know a lot of good food is going to be made. I'm looking forward to it. So, uh, yeah, Uncle Lou wanted me to say it's free food. So there you go, free food. All right, Colossians 1. Verses 15 through 20. Hear now the word of the true and living God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let us pray. Lord God, we would see Jesus and see Him clearly from this passage of Scripture. We pray that as we see Jesus, we would recognize Him as Lord of creation and Lord of new creation. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now until Christmas, we will be doing a series called Christmas Carols. And really what this is, it's not so much grabbing hold of the familiar Christmas carols that we sing. Uh, in fact, I was talking with uh, Monty just before services began, and he was hoping to hear about the origins of like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Frost the Snowman, and how we pull those songs from Scripture. Uh, but instead, what this will actually be is a look at various early Christian hymns that were saying by the church, that communicated their deep faith and belief in the nature and person of Jesus. You know, you have a number of these early Christian hymns that are found throughout the New Testament. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20 is just one. We'll be looking at Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, 1 Timothy 3. Verses, uh, verse 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and following in the weeks ahead. That's kind of the, the road map of where we're going. But these are early Christian statements of belief that they no doubt saying to one another in worship with each other. Not unlike what we do. We've sang a couple songs. We'll sing a few more this morning. And these words, they, they communicate 
what we believe. They communicate the faith. They are the songs of Zion that are in our hearts that we take with us throughout the week, day by day, throughout our lives. We sang just a moment ago the first verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Unfortunately, this version's a little different. But one version that I found, verse 2, actually reads as follows. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold, He come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Now, in the second half of what we have in our songbooks, uh, verse 2, reads almost verbatim what we just saw there. But that first half, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord. This is, this is high Christology. This is a, a high view of Christ. Put down in poetry and set to music. And that again is not unlike what we find in the early church with these early Christian hymns. What's fascinating is the way Paul will grab these, no doubt familiar songs, plug them into his epistles in order to usually illustrate a larger point that he's making about Christ and what he's done for us. In fact, we can back up into verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 1 where he talks about how God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There in just a very brief sentence, just a couple verses in our Bibles, we have the gospel of what God the Father has done and God the Son in rescuing us, delivering us, saving us from the dominion of darkness and taking us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Now we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it's here that Paul inserts this early Christian hymn about Christ and the essence of this song is that God in Christ is reconciling the world to Himself. That's what's at the heart of this song. But what does that mean? For God to reconcile the world to Himself. Christ's role as reconciler is seen in what amounts to essentially a two-verse early Christian hymn. Verses 15 through 17 are the first verse. Verses 18 through 20 are the second verse. And they exalt Christ as Lord... In the first place, Christ as Lord over creation, as even the agent of creation. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 17 highlight that. And then we get Christ as Lord over new creation, which is His church. Verses 18 through 20 emphasize that. All of this communicates, again, Christ's supremacy over the cosmos, over the universe, over everything. First, we see Christ's relation to creation in verses 15 through 17. And His supremacy is accentuated in five ways. How He is image, He's firstborn, He's the means of creation, He's the goal of creation, and He's also the sustainer of creation. Look again, 
Verse 15. He is. He, that is Christ. That's who's under discussion here. God the Son. He is the image of the invisible God. This means that Jesus is the exact likeness, the perfect representation of God. When we look at Jesus, we see God. This is nothing less than what Jesus himself said in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. We would see, we would see the Father, and Jesus says, have you been with me so long? Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because God the Son shares the same essence as God the Father, though they themselves are distinct persons. Jesus himself accentuates this earlier in the Gospel of John, chapter 10 and verse 30, where he says, I and the Father, two persons, the Son and the Father, I and the Father, literally what it reads is, we are one. One in essence, one in purpose. But again, you emphasize, you see there the we, the two persons of the three persons of the Godhead. He is the image of the invisible God, present tense. And that seems to indicate that He has always been. His essential nature, His essential character has always been as God the Son. And so, before He took on flesh, before the days of the Incarnation, He was the image of the invisible God. During His time in the flesh, He was the image of the invisible God. In his glorified state, even approximately 30 years after the incarnation and his ascension back to the Father's right hand, when Paul is writing to the the Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. And I say to each one of us, even today, he is the image of the invisible God. He remains such. The song goes on. He's not only the image of the invisible God, he's also the firstborn of all creation. Notice it does not say that he was the first created thing, because that's not what this means. This is not talking about how God the Son is a created being. Some historically have read it that way, unfortunately. They make Christ out as the first created being, through whom then God just created everything else. But historically, the church has stood against that has condemned it as heresy, and indeed it is. It is outside the bounds of the faith delivered once for all to the saints. So what is, it, what is meant here by firstborn? Context indicates that this has to do with supremacy. It has to do with his preeminence. In fact, it's used just a few verses later in verse 18. How he is the firstborn from the dead. That can't mean he was the first person raised from the dead. There were three, at least, resurrections that are recorded for us during his ministry, that Jesus himself raised from the dead. There were three others that were raised from the dead in the Old Testament. So it can't mean that Jesus was the first person raised from the dead, but rather, as it says, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's the emphasis of firstborn. How he is preeminent. How he is tops. He is first place. This is why we sing another song. How we place you on the highest place. Because he's worthy of that exalted position. Notice also, again, the immediate context indicates this does not mean he was the first created thing. In fact, there's a contrast that's drawn between all created things and Jesus. 
Notice verse 15 concludes with the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16 begins, most English translations say for, that's okay. But it can also be translated as because or since. And in fact, this is one long run-on sentence here. And so the firstborn of all creation, because by him all things were created. There's the contrast between the creator, who himself is uncreated, and the creation, all things being created by him. They were created by and through the Son. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, all things were created through him and for him. Paul exhausts all of the list of uh, prepositions that he could use in order to communicate the contrast, the difference between the created things, all things that are created, and the Creator who is God the Son. Again, all of this emphasizing the deity. In fact, this goes on. And in verse 17, He is before all things. There's your preexistence. He is prior to all created things. And so, preexistence to priority over, indeed, sovereignty over all created things. All of this emphasized by that term firstborn. That's really what's being emphasized here. All this shows the Son Himself is uncreated. And so, no wonder, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Him, verse 19 says. Indeed, Christ is God to the glory of God the Father. That's the emphasis here again on firstborn. But again, He's the means of creation. It is through Him, the end of verse 16 says, all things were created through Him, that everything that exists was made through Him. There was, and we can't even talk about it this way, right? Because our inclination is to say there was a time when everything that exists was not, but can we even talk about it as time? Because it stands outside of time. Time itself is a created thing, and, and yet there was... I guess logically, a moment in eternity with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, when all things didn't exist. The, the mountains in their lofty, exalted glory, the, the oceans with their vast expanse, they, weren't, they didn't exist yet. There was, again, logically, a moment in eternity when God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit existed, but humans, with all of our lofty thoughts, did not exist. Where was, was Christ? Where was the Son in that moment? He was God and He was with God, as John emphasizes in John chapter 1. He was loved by the Father, glorious even as the Father is glorious. Again, John emphasizes this in his Gospel. John 17, verses 5 and 24. And then came, again, can we call it a time? There was, again, logically a moment when the Father determines to create through the Son, with the Spirit, all things. And all things leapt into existence at the Word of God. Again, where was Christ? Where was the Son? All things were made by Him, were made through Him, we're told. Here, John chapter 1, verse 3 emphasizes this as well. All things. All things. What do we mean by all things? 
Well, we have further clarification. All things in heaven on earth. The whole heavenly realm, as well as the entire created universe. And by the way, things visible and invisible. All things visible would be those mountains and those seas, the sun, moon, star, all the land, even all creatures, humans, what we see. But then all things invisible, what would that include? That'd be, that would include that invisible part of us, that soul within us that will continue to exist after we have expired. It would include all the angelic hosts, both the good and the fallen, fallen because of their own sin. All things, visible and invisible, and notice all things were created through Him, through Christ. That's who's being exalted here. But not only is it through Him, but it's for Him. Ah, now this is interesting. The universe stands created for Him, for Christ. That is to say, the goal of creation is for Christ. It's for Him. My kids like to ask me the tough questions sometimes, and they ask, they've asked me, well, why, why did God create everything? Why did God create everything? The temptation is to start with us. Well, you know, He, he just loves us so much, well, perhaps. But the primary reason that God does anything is for Him. It's for His sake, for His name, for His glory. It's for Him. That's why. That's your starting point, is with God in and of Himself. It's all for Him. One of the questions that then I'll ask back to my boys is, what is the chief end of humans? What's it all for, for us? The answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so that shows that our lives are for Him as well, as they ought to be. All things created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. There's His preexistence. And in Him, all things hold together. Verse 17, He's the sustainer of His creation. In Hebrews chapter 1, He sustains all things by His powerful Word, we're told there. He is the sustainer. And in fact, the way this is written, it's what's called a perfect tense. And that emphasizes past completed action with present continuing results. And all that means is that everything has been held together since the creation. Everything has been held together and continues to be held together by Christ. By Him. He is the sustainer of everything. He sustains the universe in its actual working and operation. Christ is involved in that. God is involved in that. Which shows us that no creatures are an island to themselves. We're not, we're not truly autonomous. You understand that, right? We are dependent creatures. We are contingent. We are dependent upon God. I can't even stand here. You can't even sit there. Except God holds all things together. So he is the author, the aim, the arranger of all his creation. He's supreme over it. So there's the lordship of Christ over all creation. Woo! That is lofty. They sing this stuff, right? And now 
we move into verses 18 and 20, and now, again, the, there's a shift on emphasis to how Christ is Lord over his new creation. And this is seen, again, in a number of different ways. But it begins with how he is the head of the body, the church. His headship over the church, which is his body. You see, the church is his new creation. The church is that new creation that he's, that he's forming, purchasing for himself from among all people's language, nations, and tongues. He's head over that church. And so those who bow the knee to King Jesus, to his lordship, who confess him as Lord, they are seen and they are said to be new creation. He's head over the body, the church. He's also the beginning. He's first priority. He's, what is it he says about himself? He says, I am the first and the last. I am the alpha and the omega, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. All of this emphasizing again his priority, his preeminence, his preexistence even. Of course, he's the beginner. He's the beginner of his church. He's the one who started. He's the one who said, I will build my church. It's his, after all, anyway. He's the source of it. He's also the firstborn from among the dead. Again, not the first person raised from the dead. We've talked about this. That firstborn idea has to do with priority, has to do with preeminence. And yeah, he is. He is the one who brings many sons to glory. He is the one who laid down his life for his many brothers, as Hebrew says. And so, yes, he is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. You're supposed to connect this with verse 9 of chapter 2. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In other words, all that makes God God dwells in the Son. This is an emphasis on the Godhood of God the Son, and He is truly God the Son. He is the Word who became flesh. He is the God the Son who veiled His glory for a time, took on flesh, and dwelt among us. He took on human nature. He is God in the flesh. And then through him, verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth, in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. As, and he's the only one who could do it, as both God and man, God the Son, shed his blood on the cross and died in order to reconcile the church, indeed, all things to God the Father. It is Christ through His death, that brings harmony to a broken, fallen creation. The universe in need of reconciliation. And Christ is the one who accomplishes that reconciliation. The idea of reconciliation, He's made friends again. There was hostility. There was enmity between God and humans. And Christ is the one who eliminated that through His death on the cross. You know, I appreciated Eric's words before we sang Ferris Lord Jesus because the song's all about him. 
And so also is this hymn. It's all about Jesus. An early Christian statement of what they believed. And it's all about Jesus. And so what does it mean for us today? What do we carry across the bridge of time for us today? What does it mean for Christ to be Lord of creation and Lord of new creation today? The word put on flesh, well, how do these words put on flesh today, as it were, in the church? Several points of application present themselves. Let me just give a few. Why did Paul, why was Paul writing to the Colossians in the first place? That's a good place to start, right? Paul, the apostle, writing to the church in Colossae. But why does he put pen to parchment in the first place? Part of the reason is because there were a group of individuals who were claiming that, you know, that there's a gap between God and humans, and there are a number of celestial beings that you can climb this ladder, as it were, to heaven. Or, in fact, you use all of these various beings and entities in order to mediate your way to God. This was a, an early form. It wasn't full-blown Gnosticism that was to come in the second century. But it was the early roots of it. Some call it even a proto-Gnosticism. Because God is so high and holy in His Godhood, there's no way we can approach Him. And so you need all these various beings of light. They have all kinds of different names for them. All these different aeons. And they're the ones who will mediate to God. That's what was going on. In Colossae, Colossae was a hotbed for this stuff, by the way, so was Ephesus. Had a lot of that going on in the Lycus River Valley in that time. And so here is Paul saying, time out, not so fast. These, verse 16, thrones, that was one word they would use for them. These dominions, another word they would use for them. These Rulers, these authorities, all these are words that are intended to key in to the readers that, you know, all those intermediate beings that you think are so important that are thrones and rulers and all these dominions and all that? Guess who made them? Guess who made all those those ones that are trying to bridge the gap between you and God? All of them were made by Christ. Every last one of them. Therefore, are inferior to Christ. And indeed, it is only Christ. Christ is the only one who can bridge the gap between God and humans. In fact, it's not just so much a gap by our nature, in that we're flesh and God's spirit. It's not so much just a gap, it's that hostility exists because of sin. Enmity exists between God and humans because of sin. And none of these thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, none of them can take care of that problem for you. Only Jesus is the one who can do that. Jesus is the only one who not only did it, but He was worthy, He was able to because of who He is as both God, the Son, who put on flesh and dwelt among us. You know, there are many today who say, you know, yeah, you know, there's many ways to God. All roads lead to God. It's like God is a mountain at the top of a mountain, and all these different roads will take you up to the top of the mountain. 
you know, just kind of pick your poison, as it were. The reality is, that is just as heretical as what was going on in their day. No, it's not that there's many roads that lead to God. There's only one road that leads to God. Jesus himself said as much. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ah, Jesus, that's so narrow-minded, so exclusionary. It is exclusive, and yet it's very inclusive. Because the call is for the whole universe. Because Christ is reconciling all things to the Father through himself. So Christ, the Redeemer, Christ, the Creator, the emphasis that Paul is drawing here in their day, I believe it does have a message for us today about the nature of Christ and and what He has accomplished. There's another aspect of this which is significant. And again, it, it touches on the lordship of Christ over creation. Christ is Lord over His creation. Christ created everything. And yet, there are those who would take issue with that. There are those who would argue, well, actually, uh, everything came about because of what? A a Big Bang, and then over billions of years, uh, through random chance and purposeless accidents, boom, here we are, everything, right? Therefore, we are merely so many, mostly water-filled sacks that are living in a dispassionate universe. There is no God above us, no hell beneath our feet, and so, what, I guess eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die? Or, man, we got to do everything we can in order to prolong our existence because we've only got so much of it. I'll just use myself as an example because I guess I'm the one talking. There were a couple, several books that were published in the mid-2000s. I've got a couple of them in my library. One is called Generation Me. The other is called Hurt. Uh, The first one is by a woman, I believe her last name is Twinge, maybe? The other is by a fellow named Clark. Both of these are sociological studies. Uh, Hurt is actually faith-based and has application for youth ministry. Again, they were both published in 2004-2006. They are studies of my generation. At the time, 2004 is when I graduated high school. And so these were, again, sociological studies of the millennial generation. What is fascinating is Generation Me identifies the uh, core problem uh, as, well, there's a number of different things. It was technologically driven. It was net-net. Chapter 4 of that book is all about how this is a, a generation that's growing up that is, that is more anxious than any generation before it, that, has, that struggles with depression more than any generation before it. Clark made a a similar observation in his book, Hurt, and he said that the core issue was actually abandonment. And he says it's it's abandonment by the future generation, the generation that went before them, I should say. 
that uh, really what all these kids want are adults who care. But they've been, a, they've been abandoned, largely. And what they did was they formed their own uh, peer-led community, and you kind of end up with a Lord of the Flies type scenario. Both of these researchers indicate that this is a, my generation specifically, is one that is uh, over-medicated because of a high level of anxiety and depression and, and rooted in those issues of abandonment. Uh, the inability to handle the rapid expansion of uh, the, well, the, uh, the devices and all that. All this goes into the mix. But I wonder, if we approach it from an anthropological uh, direction, that is uh, rooted in us, what happens when we begin to tell young people, you weren't created by a creator. You're not the special creation of a good God. You are merely the product of millions, billions of years of random, purposeless, chance accidents. What happens? In that? When I was in kindergarten, five years old, I came home from school and I told my mom, I said, Mom, guess what we learned today? We learned we came from monkeys. Mom immediately said, no, you weren't, and proceeded to explain, we were created by God. But I wonder about all these studies that talk about the, the high levels of anxiety and depression among my generation, could it be that one of the core reasons for that is because people have been told for so long, you're... you're just a fluid-filled sack in a dispassionate universe. And you are not the special creation of God. Do we have a message for this current generation, the generations to come, that in fact Christ, He created everything? You are the special creation of a loving God. You are not an accident. You are made on purpose. That God determined the time and place in which we should live, move, and have our being so that we might seek Him out and find Him. He's not far from each one of us. We do have a profound message that God made each one of us. God loves us with incredible love, so much so that God the Son, it drove Him to a cross to die in our place for our sins so that we don't have to face eternity away from Him, but instead can enjoy Him forever. And it's all to His glory. Yeah, but I do believe we have a message to speak into our culture, into our time. And it's rooted right here in the Lordship of Christ over creation. In the meantime, in the meantime, what are we to do? Well, we are image bearers. And in fact, because of Christ, that divine image within us has been put back together. It was shattered at the beginning, in the fall, but our second Adam, Christ, has restored that divine image in us. And since we have put on a new self, this is 3 verse 10 of Colossians, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, that's the truth about who we are as those who've been reconciled to God through Christ, 
then in the meantime, we do have a mission to pursue. We are representatives. We are ambassadors for Christ. We go forth and we tell our fellow image bearers where they can find restoration and healing at a core, deep level. Every Christian is an image-bearing minister of reconciliation. And so we go forward. We have a, a responsibility, an obligation to share with others how God in Christ is reconciling the world to Himself. And so verses 21 through 23. And you, who were once alienated, hostile in mind. There's the open hostility. There's the enmity, right? Doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In other words, that's what Christ did on the cross. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And just as he was a minister, we similarly are ministers of reconciliation. We take this gospel message of peace to our fellow image bearers that they too might find the restoration that they need, again, at a soul level. The tight parallel that's drawn throughout this poem, this hymn, this early Christian statement of belief, is that the agent who created all things is one and the same who created a new creation. That's Christ. The one who accomplished creation is one and the same the one who accomplished reconciliation and redemption. The one who brought into existence this very creation is one and the same who brought into existence a new creation by His blood. And the one who redeems us is one and the same, the one who creates us. Behold our God, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. The lofty and exalted view of Christ here, Father, is breathtaking. We praise you as Lord, as our Creator, and as our Redeemer. We pray, Father, that with the mission set before us, we would go forth as ministers of reconciliation. Enable us, empower us, so that we are capable for the mission. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.